0: Well, we, this morning, are continuing our sermon series uh, this fall, and Lord willing, through the end of the year, we have looked at several of the I Am statements in John's Gospel. We've seen where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, and today, here in John chapter 8, we come to another of those I Am statements. The sermon is just going to focus on verses 48 to 59, but I did ask Pastor Mike, to read that entire passage as it provides some background. Before we do take a closer look at verses 48 to 59, would you bow with me and, and pray? Father, we pause for a moment because we want to ask you to do in our hearts what we cannot do of our own accord. And that is to hear your word properly, to understand it as we ought to, to apply it, respond to it appropriately. And Lord, for me to deliver it, to preach it, and to communicate it as I ought to. Lord, we all in this room right now need the work of your spirit. And so we, Lord, just acknowledge our need, our dependence upon you to do that work right now as we take a look at your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christian Herder, was the 59th governor of the state of Massachusetts. And during his reelection bid, he decided that he needed to hit the campaign trail fairly hard. And so he worked diligently, day in and day out, from sunrise to sunset, working hard on the campaign trail. Well, on one particular day, he got up fairly early in the morning to begin his campaign activities. He got up early to begin meeting with the voters, rubbing shoulders with the people, and speaking at multiple speaking engagements for his campaign re-election bid. Before he knew it, it was mid-afternoon that day, and he hadn't had a bite to eat the entire day. He was starving. Well, that afternoon, one of his campaign stops happened to be at a local church that was having a church picnic. Herder was completely famished at this point and could not wait to begin eating. And so the first thing that he did when he arrived is he got right into the serving line and got his plate. He put his plate out to the woman that was serving the chicken and she put a piece of chicken on his plate and then promptly turned to the next person in line as if to keep going. Well, Governor Herter just gently responded to her and asked her, excuse me, miss, um, Do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? The woman replied to him, no, I'm sorry. I'm only supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. I understand, said the governor, but I am really hungry. I have been working hard all day and I haven't had a bite to eat this entire day. I would really like an extra piece of chicken. Sorry, the woman said, only one piece of chicken per person. Well, Governor Herter was known for being a pretty gentle person, a pretty mild-mannered man. He was very likable. as part of the reason why he was elected as governor in the first place. He was a very likable person. But that afternoon, he decided that he needed to try a different tactic with this woman in order to get this extra piece of chicken. So he decided that he would have to pull rank and throw his weight around a little bit. He asked the woman, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of the state of Massachusetts. To which the woman replied to him, well, do you know who I am? I am the lady in charge of the chicken. One piece of chicken means one piece of chicken. Now move along. And that's what happened. Well, what is it about stories like this one that so resonate with us? What is it that we love about stories of people in positions of authority getting humbled by people in positions of less authority? What is it that we find so gratifying about a chicken lady at a church picnic putting a United States governor in his place? There's something in us that loves that. Well, whatever it is, there's something innate within us that loves seeing people challenge authority. We like it. We like when people take on the establishment or when they upset the powers that be. As a 21st century people, there's just something innate within us that is extremely wary of people with authority claiming too much power for themselves. And we're especially wary of those people claiming that power, that authority over us, telling us what to do. Well, this instinct within us is really nothing new in the world. This is not a, a new or a modern phenomenon. It's, it's not even a uniquely American or Western phenomenon. It's a, actually a deeply human characteristic, and it's an ancient one as well. In John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59, the passage that Pastor Mike just read, we find Jesus in this passage engaged in a debate with a group of people who are challenging his claims of authority, especially his claims of authority over them. And as the passage moves along from verse 31 to 59, this group of people become more and more hostile, more and more contentious toward Jesus over his claims. What starts off is a group of people who were initially interested in Jesus and even receptive to Jesus and to what he was saying, eventually this same group of people turns into a crowd that wants to kill him. But what was it that Jesus said? What was it that turned this group of people from being a people interested in him to being a people that wanted to kill him? How do we go from verse 31, which says... To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. How do we go from there, from a group of people who are initially interested in Jesus, but not yet fully committed followers of Jesus, how do we go from there to verse 59, which says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. What was it that transformed this group of people. What did Jesus say? What did he do? Well, let's pick up the story beginning in verse 48. It says, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? This group of people, they don't like Jesus. They don't like him. For a Jew to be called a Samaritan would be like someone today being called a traitor. It'd be like being called a first century version of a Benedict Arnold. It'd be like being called a backstabber, a two-faced, a villain, an enemy of the people. Because for most Jews during this time, a Samaritan was the epitome of the lowest of the low. And this was a view that had stretched back for centuries, and it was a view that many Samaritans felt about Jews. And this is what they're calling Jesus. But the reason for this attack against Jesus, the reason that they lobby and throw these attacks at him, is because of what Jesus has just said in verse 47. Take a look. It says, He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Jesus has just said this about a fellow Jew, about a group of fellow Jews, that they don't belong to God. For for Jesus to say this would have been completely offensive and would have completely caught off guard this group of people. They would not have expected to, to hear that from a fellow Jew, that they don't belong to God. And there would really only be two explanations that could possibly explain why Jesus would say this. Either Jesus himself isn't actually a Jew, he's a Samaritan, and therefore a traitor, or he's demon possessed. He's crazy, out of his mind. He is not thinking straight. That's the only reasonable explanation for why a Jew could say this about another Jew. Verse 59. 49, sorry, verse 49. Jesus says, I am not possessed by a demon. He doesn't even acknowledge that racial slur about being a Samaritan. He says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus saying to them, Tread lightly. Walking on thin ice here. The crowd here in this passage in John 8, they think that by criticizing and rejecting Jesus, that they're actually aligning themselves with God. That's what they think is happening here. That by criticizing Jesus, they are on the side of God. But what Jesus tells them is that the very person that they think they're aligning themselves with is actually the one who's aligned with Jesus. And he says he happens to be the judge who's seeking Jesus' glory. One of the great ironies all throughout John's gospel is that the people who often think that they are on the side of God because they're opposing Jesus, in the end they fail to realize that they're actually opposed to God. They think that they're on the side of God, but in the end, it turns out they're not on the side of God. And to make matters worse in John's gospel, these people often do it with complete sincerity. They're completely genuine in their opposition to Jesus. They think they're doing it for God. In fact, Jesus speaks to this in John chapter 16, verse 2. You don't need to turn there, but listen to what Jesus says. He's talking to his disciples... And he says, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Now Jesus ultimately knows what awaits him when he goes to the cross. Which is why he says in Luke chapter 23, 24, that he asks God to forgive them. He says, Lord, they know not what they do. And here he's telling his disciples the same thing will happen to you. People are going to reject you. They're going to say all kinds of things against you, and they're going to do it believing that what they're doing is right. They're offering a service to God. One of the things that we, as followers of Jesus today, need to keep in mind is that people who stand opposed to God... Or who stand opposed to his message or to his values often do so with complete sincerity. They're often completely, genuinely convinced that what they're doing is right. They believe that they're on the side of good, that their words, their actions, their cause, their message, their their, their deeds are just. And much like the crowd in John chapter 8, very often they're not knowingly aligning themselves against God. But until their eyes are opened, they will go on opposing God, His people, His message, and they will do it with complete sincerity. And for such people in our lives, we need to extend great mercy the way that Jesus did. Look at what he says in verse 51. He says, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Get the picture in your mind. Here's this group of people intent on opposing Jesus. They're intent on rejecting his message, undermining his character. They're becoming more and more hardened and hateful toward him doing it all in the name of the Father, and Jesus says in verse 51, to them, if anyone would keep my word, he would not see death. He says, even if you, you who hate me, you who want to kill me, if even if you keep my word, you'll never see death. Jesus is extending them mercy. He doesn't want them to face death. He doesn't want them to experience that far more severe death that he's talking about in verse 51. Spiritual death. What John will later on go on to call in Revelation chapter 20, the second death. The judgment, the condemnation that's reserved for Satan, demons, and everyone who in the end reject Jesus. He doesn't want them to experience that. He says, if anyone, including you who hate me, keep my word you'll never see that death. You'll never come under that condemnation, that judgment, if you'll but keep my word. But of course, the people do not understand what Jesus is saying. They assume that what he's talking about is physical death and not spiritual death. Verse 52. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? They're saying to Jesus, Jesus, how can you possibly say that your word can keep someone from dying? Abraham and the prophets, they kept God's word, and they died. Are you claiming that your word has greater authority than the word that they received? You must be crazy. You must be out of your mind, demon-possessed. Verse 54, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. See, Jesus is still trying to appeal in mercy to these hard-hearted people. He's still trying to convince them to listen to what he's saying about himself. And to help them do so, he appeals to the Father. He appeals to the one whom they claim in verse 54 is their God. One of the things that I have learned as a father of four little kids is that kids are actually pretty smart. They're pretty intelligent, and I think that there are times when I don't give them enough credit for their intelligence. Over the years, our kids have learned that if they want to convince or persuade dad about something... There's actually a powerful, very powerful, three-word phrase that they can use in order to convince dad. All they need to say is, but mom said. But mom said. It is one of the most powerful, authoritative phrases that a small child in the Wickland household can use. And they use it. So the kids will sometimes come up to me throughout the day and they'll ask for a snack. They're hungry again. Again. And they can't reach the snacks, so they ask Dad to get them snacks. And so I often respond by saying something like, Didn't you just eat? We're not doing snacks already. You just ate. And then they respond with, But Mom said. Mom said we could have a snack. And so do I do. Well, all right. If Mom said, then you can have your snack. Or it'll be a Friday night, which typically is our family movie night together. And the kids will come to me and say that they want to watch a movie or a show, one that they've already seen a thousand times, like Bluey. For those of you with small children, you know the show Bluey. It's always on, always being asked to watch. And if I suggest to watch something that we haven't seen a thousand times, the kids will pull the trump card. But mom said, mom said we could watch Bluey. So we watch it. Now, Anna and I are almost always on the same page when it comes to parenting decisions, especially small decisions like that, snacks and what we watch. But my kids have learned that if they want dad to be convinced of something, if dad needs a little bit extra persuasion, they can appeal to someone else's authority. They can appeal to mom's authority. And that's what Jesus, in mercy, is trying to do to these people in John 8. If they won't be convinced, that they won't believe what he has to say about himself, then maybe they'll believe what the Father has to say. The very one that they claim is their God. And if they won't believe the Father, maybe they'll believe Abraham, the one whom they claim they're true descendants of. Look at verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham... Rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. In verse 57, the people don't like what Jesus has just said. They are shocked at what Jesus has just said about Abraham. But what made this statement in verse 56 particularly shocking for the people was not that Jesus claimed that Abraham had some kind of prior knowledge about the coming messianic age. That's not what shocked the people. It wasn't that Jesus said that Abraham knew or had some sort of revelation from God 2,000 years prior about the true identity of the coming messianic king. What shocked the people was that Jesus said that coming messianic age, that future king, had arrived in himself. That's what shocked the people, that Jesus said Abraham had been looking forward to his day. And so they say in verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus, we know you're crazy now. Abraham has been dead for 2,000 years. You haven't even been alive for half a century And yet you speak as though you knew Abraham personally. Really? Were you one of his contemporaries? Have you really seen Abraham? Verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself. Slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus has just uttered one of the most audacious claims that a Jew could possibly make about himself. It is the most unimaginable statement that the crowd would have ever expected to have heard from the mouth of a rabbi. A claim to being God in the flesh. Verse 58 is one of the most absolute and unqualified claims of divine authority that you will find anywhere in John's gospel. And Jesus isn't speaking in riddles. He's not being unclear. He is saying in no uncertain terms that the one standing before the people is the one true eternal God of Israel. That in the flesh, before them, stands the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people, they do not miss his meaning, they understand entirely what he's saying, which is why in verse 59, they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. What the people heard when they heard Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am, was not a strange grammatical construction or an awkwardly phrased response the way that it sounds to our ears, What they heard was the divine name of God. What they heard was an explicit reference to Exodus 3.14. If you remember the story in Exodus chapter 3, God has appeared to Moses from inside the burning bush. And he meets with Moses, says, Moses, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. He reveals himself to Moses, and Moses says, Okay, God, when I go back to the people and tell them you sent me, and they ask me, what is God's name? What am I supposed to tell them? And in Exodus 3.14, God says this, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, Moses. I am has sent me to you. Jesus is quoting Exodus 3.14. And by doing so, he is claiming in an unqualified way, in an uncertain manner at the one standing before the people, the one that's now saying, I am, he is the true eternal God of the universe. And the people are opposed to him. We asked earlier at the beginning of this sermon, why did the people turn on Jesus Why did they go from initially interested in Jesus, even receptive to him in verse 31, to wanting to kill him in verse 59? Picking up stones to stone him as the law required. Why? Why'd they do this? Well, it wasn't because he challenged them about their relationship with God. That wasn't why they picked up stones to stone him. It wasn't because he questioned their spiritual status as descendants of Abraham. They were fairly used to that. In fact, John the Baptist had done something very similar. No, that's not why they wanted to kill him. They also didn't want to kill him because he claimed that his word had the ability and the power to keep someone from seeing death. They were fairly used to those kinds of claims too. The Jews all around Jerusalem were used to upstart Galilean rabbis coming down to Jerusalem and making all kinds of audacious claims about themselves and trying to to gain a following by doing it. They were used to that. What made the people want to kill Jesus there on the spot was that he did all those things while claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to end his life. Because he claimed to have the absolute divine authority to do those things. And so they sought to kill him. And when it comes to Jesus today, the crux of the issue is still over Jesus' claim to being God. It's still what divides people today. That is still the dividing line over who Jesus is. A Jesus who loves sinners and eats with outcasts and heals the sick and teaches good moral principles and from time to time upsets the religious elite, that's a Jesus that many people can get on board with. That's a Jesus that many people like. But as soon as Jesus claims to be God, as soon as he claims to have the absolute divine authority over our lives to tell us what to do, suddenly that's a Jesus that's not so attractive anymore. Suddenly, we have a problem with Jesus. During World War II, C.S. Lewis gave a series of radio talks over the BBC radio channel that were later compiled and then published into a book called Mere Christianity. And just as a plug for the book, if you haven't read it, read it. Mere Christianity. And in his chapter titled, The Shocking Alternative, Lewis explores the nature of our fallen world. The world as we know it today, broken and everything. He explores the nature of this world, and in the chapter he asks what God has been doing to correct this world, to set things right. He goes, starts off by saying the first thing that God did was that he gave us a conscience. He gave us a moral code that would guide us. Then the next thing he did was that he chose for himself a group of people and gave them the scriptures. But the most important thing that God did was that he gave us his son. But Lewis goes on to say that when he gave us his son, he did not give us his son the way that the world has given us religious leaders throughout history. He didn't come, the son, did not come giving us a new set of rules that we might follow to set us straight. He didn't come giving us an alternative way of living that might straighten things out. That's not what Jesus came doing. Instead, he came claiming to have the divine authority in himself to set things straight. And here's how Lewis ends that chapter. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on, that is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. Two options. Either he's God or he's not. And when it comes to Jesus today, that is still the dividing line. Because if he's God, then he's the Lord of life, including the Lord over our lives. But if he's not God, then he's not the Lord of life and we can ignore him. Those are the two options that Jesus leaves for us. That's the dividing line. I want to talk just for a brief moment with those in the room or listening online who might find themselves on the fence about Jesus. Maybe you're considering some of the claims that Jesus has made and you're wondering if they're true. Wondering if he's God, then what will that mean for me? One of the things I can tell you it will mean for you is mercy. Because Jesus is God, he is gracious, loving, and he's kind toward all he has made, including you, which means, among other things, that you do not need to clean up your life or get your act together or get everything figured out before you come to him. You simply come to him as God, acknowledge your need for his mercy, and you will find mercy. But if Jesus is God, then another thing it will mean for you is total commitment. Because if Jesus is God, he wants all of you. He wants every aspect of who you are. You don't get to keep anything from Jesus. Every aspect of your life falls under his lordship. He wants it all. And he wants to completely transform it. Because if he's God, then he is the Lord of life including over your life, every aspect of your life. But for most of us in this room who have already bowed the knee to Jesus, I want to address us as well. Jesus has just said in verse 58 that he is the great I am, that he is the God of the universe, the God of Israel. And if that's true, and we believe that it is, Then the same exact thing applies to us. He wants all of us. Every aspect of who we are, every part of our lives falls under His lordship, which means we don't get to keep anything from Him. He wants it all He wants our money, our children, He wants our jobs, our relationships. Hobbies, dreams, our desires, our houses, our cars, our phones, our secrets, our time, our allegiances. He wants it all. Because if Jesus is the great I am, and he is, then he's Lord of our lives. And so the question that's being posed to us this morning in John chapter 8, as we reflect on Jesus saying, I am, the question being posed to us, is will we live like Jesus is the great I am? Will we live like it and accept his full authority over our lives? Or, like the crowd in John chapter 8, will we go on challenging his authority, keeping things from him? Let's pray, and let's ask God to help us do the former. Father, we thank you for your your word, this testimony, this reminder that Jesus is God, the Lord of life, the Lord over our lives. My prayer, Father, is that you would help each and every single one of us bow the knee again and again in our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, if there are things in our lives that we are knowingly keeping from Jesus, would you reveal that to us? Let us give it to him. If there are areas of our lives, Lord, that we are unknowingly keeping from his lordship, Lord, would you please, I pray, reveal that to us? Give us the ability through the Spirit to bow the knee to Jesus in every area of our lives. I pray all these things in his name, amen.